What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 82 of the uh, Panoramic Outdoors podcast here. Today we got a interesting guest on, Jeffrey Fabian. And uh, stay tuned to hear a little bit more about the podcast. But uh, to start out the intro here, I want to say big thanks to everybody who purchased cups yesterday. We launched our camp cups on our website and we had one style sell out fairly fast and we still have a couple left as of right now which is the day previous so by the time you're listening to this they could be very well sold out which is awesome we're, we're pumped about it and uh, we hope you guys who have purchased those cups get lots of use out of them by the campfire camping at home wherever and uh, share some of those memories with us yeah if you haven't seen them they're on our instagram they're in the web store they're easy to check out what I personally, I was really excited to be coming out with like a camp style cup or like that enamel tin cup because I don't know if you've noticed, Jace, but I, I carry one in my, my blind bag everywhere I go, basically. It like replaces like having to rely on like a red solo somewhere. Um, you can use it to heat things up if you're really in a pinch and stuff like that. So I get a lot of use out of mine. So I was excited that we were able to come out with one that only, only has our name on it but like i think they look pretty sharp too and they're a little different from the other ones yeah too right yeah they're a taller style mug they hold 15 ounces which i think is one ounce shy of a can of beer um if you're being strategic yeah i think that's what they hold eh? is that or is that a can of beer 16 ounces or is it 24 ounces i don't know anyways you can fit some beer in there anyway (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but yeah, I'm 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 excited about them too, and I think uh, I've been watching you tote that cup around, that other one around for quite some time, and it's got some nice patina on it, and I like the like the way that thing looks, man. Still alive, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Um, so we got a couple other things hot off the docket here. Um, I wanna I wanna pick your brain about today though for a minute. It seems to be uh, an important kind of day for you regarding one of your favorite musicians yeah artists we've we've talked uh we've talked at a length maybe not great length but uh you're you're referring to levon helm of course mm-hmm. yeah yeah and he passed away today about nine years well nine years ago on the dot um and yeah i i posted there about him and uh, i was saying i'm I'm not a particularly i wouldn't class myself as a, a musical person per se like i can't pick up a, an instrument and strum it or uh you know play it with great ease but uh he's had a pretty profound impact on the the way i listen to music and uh what i enjoy so just thinking about him today i'm actually having a a whiskey that uh was bought by by a friend of mine for my birthday uh called heaven's door and it's actually owned in part by bob dylan and the connection there would be so i'm having a whiskey for levon today because initially when his band the band uh started getting big they were the backing band for bob dylan so they were the group that bob went out with to get go electric so that's their kind of like one of their kind of claims to history i would say is like they were there for the the electric turn of bob dylan and that was pretty influential i would say in rock history so 
little little tip of the hat today to Levon. I don't think he has his own bourbon, so I have to drink Bob's. <laughs> and what's I'm I'm kind of interested. What's your what's your uh, you know your draw to him? How come? Man, he's just a cool there. guy. Like he seems. I've I've said before, he's super down to earth. Um, but also like just this like extremely like soulful um and like personable musician he he was a drummer who both sang and played drums at the same time which a lot don't mm-hmm. and he was able to come out with like this he was in a band of four other canadians and was able to come out with this um he's from arkansas himself come out with this very like uh southern twang um kind of rhythmic singing and it it seemed to meld perfectly with these these four other guys and uh they landed up becoming the great grandfathers of what is known as Americana music, which is kind of funny when you think about it, that four Canadians and one guy from Arkansas <laughs> define a genre in America, but that's how good they were as musicians. So um, they, they created something completely new. Um, I, I think all their albums are great, but uh, yeah, Levon was kind of like the centerpiece in a lot of ways for me for that band, like like a lot of drummers are. That's cool. That's cool. I think uh, right now in the the COVID times, we'll say, um, you know, music's kind of one of the things. It's it's always been something that that I use as a a crutch or whatever to either you know get me through the day or get me energized or whatever maybe. And it's even become more important now. And uh, in these strange times, so that that's cool. I like that uh, the history and the connection there. But uh, something else I'm super pumped about here is we're we are on the cusp of um, a few hunting seasons coming up. Uh, turkey season, obviously, being a big one for us. We are in the middle of the youth season right now, so I hope there's a bunch of people, folks, getting out there with some uh, prospect hunters and outdoors folks uh, right now. And what are your plans for turkey season, Tristan? I think we may have chatted about this before, but uh, yeah. We're we're hoping to get that camp roll in and maybe get outside with a few folks that we've connected with and planned around. And I'm honestly like I'm I'm thrilled of the idea of having a camp because we've we haven't done it in all fall, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, our fall, which is kind of filled with camps in one way or the other, um, was heavily scaled back. We'll say mm-hmm. so. The thought of getting back to a few of those uh, activities and kicking back around the campfire yeah we'll see how covid plays out though of course that's always the big x factor still yeah there's some stuff happening right now with that um my my plan is like man i want to get out before camp and get a turkey so i can just like kind of sit back and (laughs) and relax and go hunt with people and like do some filming and yeah yeah and just enjoy the more the, the the whole camp side of it a little more than i I normally do. You know what I mean? Take some of that pressure off myself. Yeah, that sounds... Because we've got a few activities that we need to squeeze in there for sure. And that kind of sounds like my ideal camp. If I'm thinking about my deer camps, I've thought about this recently. It's like, if I'm there for five or six days, seven days, if I can get a deer on the second day, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like hunt, hunt, and, hunt yeah. hard for a little while. Yeah, not go home after you kill the deer. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's, let's not be egregious about this here. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that's pretty cool. I'm trying to. I'm learning how to call too for for turkeys. That is, and uh, 
if anyone's got any calling tips, I'm all I'm all ears at this point in time. Nice. I feel like there's going to be uh, just like a plethora of turkey podcasts and and uh, YouTube content rolling out here right away because like obviously things fire up in the south before they start firing up here, but um, so I'm sure there'll be lots of lots of avenues for for education coming up. Yeah, I saw. Speaking of the South, I saw Tony Peterson helped his uh, kid kid plug a bird there, so that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Tony he hunts quite a bit with his uh, with his kids there, and um, I think he's got a few good articles on on uh, how to get kids outside. I've seen Joe Joe Apple plugged a turkey too. Yeah, he's on the board. Big Joe. Yeah, <laughs> he also blew up his tire. I saw. Yeah, yeah. Always yeah. without. Always with the venture, I should say. Yeah, I'm surprised that guy probably doesn't even need a jack to lift up that freaking truck and <laughs> just no. whistle it off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about that. And then uh, I think I'm going to try and squeeze in some bear hunting also, whether that's uh, an uh, opportunistic encounter while we're out turkey hunting or, or uh, you know, something a little more dialed in a little bit further into the season. And, uh, what's your, what's your take on bear hunting? I'm, I'm kind of interested. I don't think we've ever chatted about this very much. And I, you know, I, I, I know you, you haven't had like a huge interest in bear hunting. So I kind of want to, uh, you know, pick your brain about it a little bit. Yeah. Like, I, th- I think we've talked about it a bit, but like, I don't know. I, I understand the, the appeal to bear hunting i understand i appreciate people who use the meat and stuff like that when we were coming up around it though it was there was a lot of like guided hunts occurring and stuff like that and a lot of the times the folks were just taking the cape mm-hmm. and screwing off so uh maybe that was part of it like i never really started to think of bear as a game meat until later in my life but i don't know i've always just had like kind of encounters with bears in the bush it's like kind of like this standoffish experience and like i've just never really thought of them as like a game target in in many ways like Mm -hmm. when i look at a deer i can be like oh yeah i could slip a shot in there yeah but when i'm looking at the bear it's more like just kind of observing it and stuff like that um yeah i just think that like there's not a i don't have that same drive yeah to go harvest the bear doesn't mean I won't eat it necessarily or won't like help if someone gets one down. It's just like me personally, I don't have that drive much like I'm sure other people don't have drives around some certain animals too. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, that could be, uh, attributed to maybe not growing up, you know, pursuing bears and having bear meat in the freezer growing up and, and all that. And, uh, it certainly is like a different animal to be observing in, in nature. You know, it's, it's, they act different and it's, you know, when you're comparing like deer to elk and moose and stuff like that, they kind of, they obviously look for kind of similar. Yeah. Right. And then they act kind of similar in some ways. So it's yeah. all kind of intertwined, interconnected. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of hoping to, to shatter the old, uh, stigma there on, on bears. And we've obviously been dabbling a little bit on bear meat with, Josh has shared some with us and, uh, man, there's some other people putting out some good products like Sean Johnson from, uh, Harvester Outdoors there. He's, he's, uh, you know, every time he puts a piece of bear meat in the oven or on the barbecue, he's, uh, 
sharing it on Instagram and it looks damn good. So yeah, yeah, and I've heard that some people swear by the meat too. I'm trying to think of who else was on our podcast. Paul. Paul McCartney was yeah. saying that number one is bear. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe number one was squirrel. Number two was bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's uh, that's a pretty hot take in my opinion. But I I believe them. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes yeah. sense because I think they're more closely related to pigs than they are. Yeah, like a like a a cervid, like a, a antelope or an elk or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So a little, little bit more fatty. So yeah, I think that's a definitely an attraction to to many folks. Um, what about uh, what have you been chefing up lately? You said we we're talking about a steak earlier. Oh yeah, I finally finally got around cooking a steak on the pit barrel and it took me long enough the i was apprehensive about it though and the reason was that to to cook a a steak fast and hot on the pit barrel seemed like a waste of coal to me Mm -hmm. but i justified it by throwing some potatoes on ahead of time nice so i I did like a baked potato on the pit barrel and then what i did was not only i dry brined the steak so it was kind of like it got that nice tacky coating on it and Mm -hmm. stuff and then I tried to slow smoke it, like at around 200 for like about 30 minutes. I think I might have overcooked it a little. I let them rest for a while and let those coals heat up real hot. Yeah. And then I pulled the coals up. So if anyone hasn't seen the pit barrel smoker, it's like a, a barrel style smoker. It's got the grill that you can lay at the top end of the barrel. So that top 20% of the barrel, you can have a grill over top. Mm-hmm. And I put the coals on top of that grill and just let them buck. And then I put the second grill that we have with it on top of those coals and just smack the steaks down, hear them sizzle. Took maybe like two minutes to just get them seared crispy and pulled them and let them rest. Yeah. And? Like I said, I think I overcooked mine a little because it was a thin ribeye. Right. Carly had this strip, like the New York strip there. That was a thicker steak. And man, was that thing like bang on. Yeah. Awesome, so, I did. I did some uh, some big T bones on the uh, on the pit barrel. Yeah, last summer I believe it was, and they were insane. And there's the the amount of like of that smoke flavor that the the fat captured. Yeah, in, that, in those steaks was crazy. Yeah, and that's what I was going for was get a little bit of like, and I did them in like a Texas rub as opposed to like a like a classic like steak spice of some sort. Yeah, and yeah, I thought it turned out great. It was it, it. I don't. I don't know if there's a name for it, but like maybe Texas steak or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. It's kind of exciting. Nice. So obviously, everyone listening to the podcast knows that Pit Barrel is a huge supporter of this podcast. And uh, if you guys are interested in stepping up your flavor game, your barbecue game this summer, make sure you check them out at pitbarrelcookers.com or. Uh, you know, check out your local barbecue store. If you if you go to their website, you can check out the uh, and see if check out their map on their website to see where their distributors are. Their their uh, where you can pick one up in Canada and in the states. I believe it's still free shipping in the states. So preparedcookers.com. Check them out. That's awesome. Yeah. And then you you had a casualty today. We did. Yeah. Yeah, so it was it was kind of weird, and I I almost half expected it, but I'm not sure if 
my whole theory is um, if it's uh, all linked together. So we have uh, we have some ducks at home that we that we raised, and I butchered a couple the day this weekend to kind of equal out the uh, the male female ratio in the flock because the males few of the males were beating up some of the females. So we butchered them and we uh, froze them. We're gonna save the them for a special day. Excuse me. But uh, through that butchering process, you know, there was a bit of um, uh, blood and feathers and guts and stuff being kind of oh yeah tossed not tossed around, but you know how how stuff happens when you're butchering animals. And uh, so Willie Willie was all for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Somehow he got covered in blood. <laughs> Uh, so, and there's blood on the ground and all kinds of stuff. So, so my first concern is like, man, this is going to bring in a fox or something and something's going to happen. So sure enough, uh, today I noticed one of our ducks was missing and, uh, I went to go do a couple laps in the yard to try and find it, not to be found. And then, uh, I had to do some running around and I came back and found a few feathers from said duck and uh that's all i found so i don't know if it truly was a uh um a land predator of some kind uh but i didn't see any tracks and i i have a hard time believing that like a bird would uh be able to pick that sucker up and take off with it and and uh you know just leave like no traces kind of thing because usually like owls we had an owl take a head off one before and it just left the body just took the head and uh, I guess an eagle or something could probably handle it pretty good. But um, it was like a couple hours between when I did my initial lap of the yard and then when I came back to, to see in the in the afternoon later on. And that's when I found the, the other evidence. So I feel like it, it had to have been like a, a fox or something. I don't know. Man, you almost need like a uh, a camera for those ducks. Yeah, actually, surveillance. I do have a security camera up. I should check it. It's probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, I hope yeah, I hope the rest of the ducks make it un undaunted. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna have to jack up the security around there for a little bit, and and uh, range is hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so we'll see i i feel like uh you know holly does a pretty good job of like covering the yard our dog and uh tracking the scent around and stuff like that so i i imagine she'd do a pretty good job of chasing off any predator that, that comes around but uh they are sneaky and they do survive so yeah yeah um anyways uh I guess one last thing before we get going. Sheldon is not joining us tonight. He is still slaving away, that poor man. Yep. He's uh, putting in his time and he's working hard. So he's he was unable to join us tonight for the intro and uh, the upcoming podcast also. So thank you, Shelly, for keeping the lights on, buddy. And, um, you know... Um, and the podcast rolling this thing uh this thing wouldn't be rolling without electricity so yeah we appreciate you and the the other hydro workers out there putting in putting in the hours to keep things going because otherwise we'd be going off a generator and some diesel bones or some dinosaur bones here yeah exactly not very sustainable yeah all right well on to uh on to our guest there jeffrey fabian 
Jeff Hales from the Hay River Reserve in the Northwest Territories, just south of Great Slave Lake. And Jeff, we had Jeff on to talk about the Indigenous Guardian Program. And for some folks, that might sound like a, maybe like a Chris Pratt Disney movie or something of the sort, right? Uh, but I, we, we got tuned into Jeff from a, an article in the Narwhal about these Indigenous Guardianship Programs. And what they are is like a very interesting look in at how First Nations are t- reclaiming conservation of land and wildlife in their regions. And it, it, it was a great talking with Jeff because Jeff was a coordinator of one of these programs and was literally responsible from top to bottom, from everything from like the program development at the inception of this thing to like choosing the uniforms and making sure the day-to-day operations were done. So we've had, uh, we had a great conversation with Jeff. It was a extended one and I'm sure we could bring him back on the podcast again and we could go for, you know, four or five hours if we really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate the insight Jeff brought. And I also kind of appreciate like the work that's been doing around Canada to, uh, to not only reclaim the, the kind of rights to exercise conservation and hunting and fishing as these folks need to, but also like it, we, the deeper we dove into it with Jeff, the more we saw how it was related to not just hunting conservation, but community and people. In fact, they were so deeply intertwined that Jeff doesn't like divorce that. They're all one thing to Jeff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. He always, uh, refers back to the, the holistic approach of everything. Yeah. And so Jeff kicks off what is uh, episode number one. So 82 on paper, but episode number one of our conservation series here with Panoramic Outdoors, where we try to bring you in behind the scenes to have critical conversations on conservation in our area. And so I'm very excited to have, as our first episode in this regard, a uh, an Indigenous leader, someone who's got on-the-ground experience and uh, committing to not just conservation, but like I said, all those other um, social impacts that we see. And I think it's a very unique conversation. It's a very rewarding one to be a part of. So without any further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, our conversation with Jeffrey Fabian from the Indigenous Guardian Pro- Program at Hay River Northwest Territories. And uh we're here today with Jeffrey Fabian. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you're dialing in from Toronto. You're, you're attending the uh, Toronto Film School there. Um, what's, what's drawing you to that right now at your point yeah. in life? Yeah. And uh, not, not to have a little quick aside here. It's Jeffrey Fabian. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. No worries. Uh, what drew me to the program was that, well, to be honest, they were the only ones who said in a pandemic. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> most, of the other, uh, most of the other places I uh, applied to, they were like, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we don't know if we can be open in. And then they had to like, people had to make a huge jump towards uh, <laughs> switching to an online only. It's like, what what would that look like? Do I need, need to even move there? And Toronto Film School is just like, yeah, sure. 
<laughs> All right. Fair cool. enough. And uh, but I've also just been really in love with the idea of uh, or the medium of film for like art or <laughs> sorry, I said that weird. I've also been really interested in uh, film as a medium for art. Like it's you can get so much ideas across and you can just good fun making it. I mean, that's incredibly meticulous and there's a lot of back work that needs to go into it in order to make sure it even gets anywhere. You can't just have the director and the actors and the cast and uh, mm -hmm. just the complexity of making something for entertainment. It's also just like a really fun uh, problem. I think I'd have a lot of entertainment out of uh, pursuing. Awesome. Yeah, you you were mentioning some of the projects that you had um, queued up in your mind, and uh, they they sound really interesting. And like there's a there's a definite hook into the the conservation aspect as well, or at least uh, from what we were discussing. So we'll we'll uh, we'll get onto that in a moment. But before we get there, we have to do our ritual here, which is the five burning questions. So Jeff, I hope you're ready for the the five questions. Hi, and I'll. Uh, one of our favorites to start off with is um, if you had one last meal on this earth, what would that meal be? Uh, uh, runny eggs, burnt toast, steak cooked all the way through so it was well done, and uh, wild grain rice. Wow. I feel like that's a statement meal, Jeff. Like is that uh, – there's a, there's a few things in there that I might not have on my plate. Do you want to just – Explain a little bit more to me why those are on, on your plate. Uh, runny eggs and burnt toast was the meal of choice that my stepfather cooked for me as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, there's, it's just uh, I, I'm pretty sure he he was really good at cooking too. It it was just that that's how he liked it. It was uh, okay. Because when you have really runny eggs, they just yeah. soften up the uh, they just soften up the burnt toast, and it turns into like a. I can't even describe the texture. It's a really good taste. That's all I can say. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, the well-done steak is that. I guess he also that. Uh, I, he because he he definitely was a pretty good cook, but he always just cooked like well-done steaks because that's how he liked it, I suppose. And now I like uh, medium-rare steaks and like rare steaks, but whenever yeah. I'm having an off day, I have I have a well-done steak because that's like a comfort food because he, that's what he always made as a kid. So if I'm about to die, I think I need all my comfort food. <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting. We've wild had green rice too, because you need carbs. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some, uh, we'll say, some culinary people on the on the podcast before too, and it's interesting you tie in comfort food because even thinking about how you know we do deer roast down here once in a while, it's definitely we have a few comfort recipes that they would cringe at, I'm sure, but it's interesting how we have that relationship <laughs> with food. And um, how how connected it can be to like things like our childhood and stuff like that. So on the, that sounds uh, like memory lane. On the uh, on the rice front, there I I found that really interesting because uh, uh, in my travels there was a, a restaurant that I came across in in the Paw, and um, they were on their breakfast menu. They had uh, I had wild rice for their for their carp instead of like hash browns or or potatoes or whatever cool. and uh it blew my mind the first time i had it i just thought this was amazing and then I, I started doing it at home um almost on a weekly basis i haven't done it for probably a couple of years now but uh that's a good reminder to maybe fire that recipe back up yeah i think uh 
If I if I could change something on that last meal though, it wouldn't be long grain rice. It'd be like instant minute rice with uh, China lily soy sauce. That's mm. a. That was a kid. Yeah. Like a. That's a kid. You're not you're not eating healthy at all. You're eating whatever you want to taste right now, like cheese slices or like bits of hot dog, like not actual food in yeah. any food group. And a, a comfort food for me would be like just instant rice with a China lily soy sauce. It's not filling at all, and like it's way too much fiber for anyone's diet to have just like a whole bowl. But it's just like, ah, I didn't <laughs> eat any fiber today, so as well. That's how you call it. What do you wash down with? Uh, either iced tea or lemonade. I'm really yeah. in love with lemonade. Nice, refreshing for sure. On to question number two, what's a what's a good book? Something maybe you'd recommend to someone. Ooh, I'm going to cheat and use Google right now because I really want to share this book. Yeah, I, I think uh, Name of the Wind by uh, Patrick Rothfuss. That's it. I would say Dune because Dune's like stayed with me since uh, I was uh, 18. But the moment I read uh, Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, I was just like, ah, yeah, yeah like this is way better. Nice. Like, uh, it's, it's fantasy uh, to be sure, and but it like the characterization as well as the uh Patrick Ralphus is like a master of English or master uh professor of literature in English he's incredibly great at writing and uh his characterization capture the way he captures emotions and brings the characters to life it's just like magic all in its own cool man I'll have to check it out I, I I'm not familiar but I uh you got me intrigued for sure yeah it's uh really quick if it's all about uh words of power or the power of names so if you know the true name of something you can basically call upon it for help and aid and it doesn't even touch on magic a whole lot like it's uh there's a <laughs> i don't want to really give it away if you actually are going to read it I, i'd recommend it okay sounds good man how about a uh an overrated band or song uh overrated band or song. I, I, <laughs> see i want to say metallica yeah but that's only just because uh painted black that's one <laughs> i feel like that was really yeah. overrated by the that, stones yeah but uh the original, specifically yeah. specifically just because growing up in a small town with a bunch of country folk like painted black rolling stones metallica you hear all those bands all the time and painted black was just on repeat for a for a for a, for a good stretch there <laughs> i just got yeah. sick of it for a while. <laughs> yeah, I think I I think I have a CD with it somewhere back in the day, probably at the bottom of a Toyota Corolla somewhere in the wrecking yard. <laughs> right now. I would have said Nickelback, but uh no, nah, Dark Horse is a banger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay, um so something you've always wanted to learn. Mm, something I've always wanted to learn uh would basically just be language. Uh, one in particular would be Japanese. That that's does seem like a cool language, and it seems like it would be pretty helpful, maybe in in some transactions as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a it's not overly uh, interesting. It's just I'm already in the process of doing what I've always wanted to do, which is film. So I don't know how else yeah. to answer that. <laughs> no, that's fair. And yeah. Learning Japanese sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. To be fair. Um, so you're 
We're on to the last question. So what what are your predictions for the Godzilla vs. King Kong release on uh, on Thursday here? Because uh, I, I, I threw I, out Thursday as a date and you couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that movie is actually just coming out on the 31st, so I could have done it. On a... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, a prediction would be... Oh, yeah, that is the 25th. Okay. I'm still busy that day. <laughs> a prediction would be the main antagonist isn't Godzilla. It's, oh, I don't know, but like, I, I, it might be a spoiler, but I'm pretty sure the antagonist is Mecha Godzilla. There, there are a few reasons why I think that, and that's because in the trailers, uh, that Godzilla is always glowing blue, like okay. regardless, and he's maintaining it. And uh, Godzilla in this canon can't maintain the blue glow for long stretches of time like he's storing it up to expel it as like a as like a nuclear blast so if he's maintaining that bright light that's highly likely that's mega godzilla there's also a scene where they're in a gigantic empty chamber and they're yelling into it and it sounds really big it sounds like a holding bay for mega godzilla <laughs> so, interesting there's definitely sure. more to this godzilla kind of a movie than i because i i think i remember i watched one of them and i was like okay that's uh <laughs> that's yeah. interesting but I, uh i can uh i can talk for hours about godzilla this would just become like the godzilla podcast if you let me go on but uh <laughs> it's all uh it's all about the, the the villains in those movies are characterized as trauma uh it's the main character is either a dad who lost a family member or lost a daughter or lost a best friend. And suddenly this monster shows up and that monster is a representation of that trauma and he's destroying and wrecking everything. And Godzilla shows up, beats him, beats up the monster while the guy can watch it. And suddenly everything's okay. Interesting. <laughs> so there's that's, a lot of psychological subtext to these things here. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just like movies everywhere. Um, movies yeah. are just telling uh, stories through experiences. In this case, you don't really experience a, uh, Godzilla is a character that you can transpose yourself into. That's why Godzilla's airtime, or like screen time in like a movie, his movies are only like six minutes to ten minutes at most. Ten minutes being extremely rare because it's all about like the human element into it, like how their experiences in it. Yeah, yeah. Like a Doctor Who is the main character of his own show. Like Godzilla, good Doctor Who, they're like outliers. They're right. not somebody you want to identify with. Interesting. I've never thought of it that way, but I can I can see that, and I, I did watch a lot of Doctor Who at one point, so <laughs> I'm gonna have to reflect on that now that you've put it out into the universe. That's that's funny. Well, you've you've passed the five burning questions. Not that we ever had anyone fail, so congrats. <laughs> um, and regrettably, we're here to talk not necessarily about um strictly Godzilla films or even the 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 film industry itself, but we're we're here to talk. Because I had bumped into an article that you were part of um, regarding something called an indigenous guardian program, oh, and yeah. that's that seemed like a like an interesting concept to uh, to me as someone who's interested in conservation and someone who uh, is interested in things like wildlife health and how we connect to our food. But I, like before we even get it, dive into that how. Like how, what led up to your involvement in this program, Jeff? Like you, where were you? Where, where were you at? Like what kind of point in your life were you at? And like, what was going on for you leading oh, up to man. this? It was, a, it was just like a series of main really low points that led me up to that. I graduated out of high school, didn't know what I wanted to do. 
afterwards didn't know what field I wanted to pursue didn't even know how to uh apply for college in some case <laughs> so I just uh got a job as soon as I left high school and four jobs later worked on a fishing vessel uh so this one fellow saw my name once and then I was doing a uh I was doing a farming course for uh, Northern Farmers Training Institute, NFTI, in the Northwest Territories, where you basically graduate and become a farmer. And I met this woman uh, uh, named Kim, and we became friends. And uh, she passed my name off to her boyfriend, who was also the same guy who was managing the fishing operation, or like coordinating between it. So he'd seen my name twice, and he offered me a position working with him. And uh, it was an awkward phone call because I, I was like eager to do that fishing that fishing vessel job again because being out in the open water is just like oh it's everything i ever want in life i spent my entire childhood on like learning wind water and wave and like <laughs> traversing the underwater obstacles or anything thereof and uh when he when i got the call for the position i was like yeah yeah i know everything about this already he's like excuse me I'm like wait is this is this not a is this not the research vessel position that i do every year like no like this is uh to work with aram like i'm uh i'm mike Lowe. And like oh oh shit okay sorry about that and then uh a bit awkward there and it was a bit awkward for like uh years afterwards <laughs> <laughs> but uh i i remember i, sh I showed up like a <laughs> i showed up like an hour early because i misread the uh the email and when i got there like nobody else was there except for the manager of that position and he was like shirtless he's like oh you're here early I'm like yeah it said at eight i'm like no well, we started at nine i'm like i think it said eight and i just like sat in the office like quietly for an hour <laughs> like my clothes showed up and it was like it was an office in us so it was super awkward to just sit in somebody's house like a total stranger um better early than late maybe i don't know oh, Hard yeah. to say. and then uh yeah, so did that for about a year. Met a fellow called Peter Redverse. The KFN Jeff, can I can I ask you? Um, so you, you you wrapped up high school and were kind of you know looking for something to do, and you got connected with this fishing vessel. Where was this all taking place uh, for our listeners uh, here? So this this was like a I had just turned twenty two at this point. It was like three years after I had left high school. Twenty three. I can't remember the exact. Oh, shit. Oh, I can't swear. <laughs> Shoot. I was uh, 21 swear. years old. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was uh, 21 working on a fishing vessel. Uh, I had worked a few other jobs at that point. Uh, and my buddy basically said that, yeah, you can make some extra money like working on this fishing vessel. Like You just put your name forward and like uh, don't show up to work drunk. And uh, don't use your first paycheck to go on a bender and not show up afterwards. And you basically have the job for the entire summer. <laughs> and it paid like a, it paid like extremely, extremely well because you're going out in the middle of the lake, the Great Lake in a small vessel to pull up nets for about nine hours. And so, uh, yeah, I just uh, took it because I the most high paying I had at that point was paying me fourteen twenty five an hour. And like... Uh, it was just I need more money than this. I don't know what I, like I can't really survive and pay rent on this. I need to make up money for like uh, anything that might come up. Like I was hoping on buying a, or buying a vehicle after I got my driver's license. I didn't even have my driver's license at that point. Like uh, my life was just basically on hold, jumping from one uh, 
minimum wage job to the next until I got that fishing vessel. And then after that, it just, uh, everything just took off. <laughs> oh. was, so you, you kind of, you, you made a commit. Chase, go ahead. I was just going to say, when you're, uh, say, Great Lake, are you talking about, like, Northwest Territories or where? Yeah, the, where uh, the Great Slave Lake uh, in the Northwest Territories. It's just like the uh, one closest to the 60th parallel. Gotcha. So you made a bit of a commitment to the the lake itself there, obviously spending nine hours on it at a time. Um, and then the, the lake gave you a little bit something back. It sounds like it kind of launched um, some things for you, um, at least within within your career. Yeah, I, um, I, I basically, I, I want to say that like I spent a lot of my time out in the wilderness of my own volition. But no, when you're a kid and you're like that close, to the uh, Great Slave Lake, as well as if you're indigenous, you're brought out kicking and screaming whether you want to go or not. <laughs> so against my will, I want to say, <laughs> no. My parents, uh, my mother and my stepfather would like bring us out and we'd uh, go camping. We'd spend a lot of time on open water. My grandfather actually uh, taught me a lot about uh, reading wind, water, and wave. And a few other community members who wanted help, like pulling nets, and were just getting old. Were basically like, "Yeah, like, uh, would you like to, would you like to give me a hand? I'll give you some money." And so, uh, well, no, you don't take money from elders. They never take money. You get experiences from elders. <laughs> and so, would just do that kind of stuff. Like, I had nothing else going on. It was uh, living on a reserve in a small village in the Northwest Territories. You don't exactly have a whole lot to do other than going outside. And you've mentioned this a couple times now, this this notion of reading wind, water, and wave. I, I, I get a hint of what it is, but can you maybe say a little bit more of, like, what it means to you? Uh, basically, keeping track of the weather, reading the surface of the water for any obstructions or obstacles just below the surface, or, like, which way the current is moving. And, uh, yeah, wind, water, and wave. <laughs> it's just uh, keeping track of the weather, inclement weather or anything. It was a uh, – I, I, I don't even know if I can properly explain it. It's just like a third or sixth sense when it comes to inclement weather, weather shifting. It's uh, when you get so a little it, breeze that hits you the wrong way when you're out in the middle of the Great Lake and you realize, oh, shit, okay, so the uh, – the cold air or the hot air from land is coming in. Suddenly the wind is going to get a lot rougher. Which side is it coming from? Because we want the wind to be coming towards us so we can uh, crest the waves and not get knocked over capsized or sidewise. Mm. So just keeping an eye on that. It probably saved us a whole lot of time and money when we're working on our fishing vessel, just uh, keeping track of that because then you just like look up like, hey, uh, uh, our captain's name was Peter. And we're like, hey, Peter, the uh, wind the wind shifted and then like you see the whole wall of clouds suddenly like bloom in the distance. It's like really, it looks pretty slow, but that's just because of the sheer size of those absolute lads. And they, they get, they get pretty rowdy pretty quick. So like Mm -hmm. an hour or two hours to get back to shore, you got to make the call right then and there. Like, do we pull up the rest of the nets? Do we leave them in the lake for an extra day and hope they're okay? Because technically we can leave them out for 36 hours, but anything more than that is like legal. I actually know. I don't think you can even leave them for longer than that. Don't quote me on that, but <laughs> don't, ta- don't take, don't take legal fishing advice from me right now. I, uh, <laughs> I haven't done that job for, uh, I haven't done that job for like close to seven years. And the most that I do now is like residential or like, Damn. it was also a community member. So 
he also put my name forward towards a, uh, my band to hire me. So I had like a whole bunch of other people. It was, it was a whole bunch of connections just being made like slowly because like no one really knew anything about me. Like in the Northwest Territories, there's really not that much to do. So I basically just stayed in and uh, played video games or <laughs> worked on my writing for like years. I got really good at writing. It's really lent itself to film. But like during that learning process of honing my honing my skill, mm-hmm. like <laughs> I basically spent no time with uh, community members after I'd uh, like left high school just because being an adult is ex- it's expensive. And uh, excuse me, but I'm going to save as much money as I can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so now you're you're honing your skill in Toronto, but you in the mean in between that you got hooked up with one of these indigenous guardianship programs. And what was kind of the the moment that happened? The exact moment that happened was that. So I worked with uh, Mike Lowe as an AROM coordinator, and that became like the uh, became like the launch board for uh, the Dato Nations uh, idea for an indigenous guardian program, and also became like the uh, framework that we were looking at for the Catlo Deche First Nation uh, uh, Indigenous Guardian framework. So it it took like a it took like two years I think I did this job like seasonally from the summer months until like uh, early fall and then I would go back to my other minimum wage job. But the second time I I had done it I got hired directly through KFN my band because they. It, it took them enough it took them a year to pro, to secure funding to even hire people because working in a small indigenous government uh, if you want your government to work you have to secure funding and the funding you get from uh, the federal government isn't really all that much to like keep everything operational it's it's enough for like a skeleton crew to say you have a government but if you want a real functioning government you have to do a lot of work to secure funding for uh, lands department lands management uh, negotiations uh, community development uh we had a we had a youth committee that needed uh funding because there was a major crisis for you like youth having no place to go in the community and so uh it was about two years before i started working with cat lodeche first nation as their like go-to on the land lands and resources researcher or lands and resource coordinator resources coordinator and so they would send me to I I met the previous uh, grand chief of the uh, or the previous grand chief of like the Northwest Territories, and uh, he basically sent me to a whole bunch of different conventions about uh, lands management, uh, fishery management, uh, food security, infrastructure, things like that, to really get my chops up and educate me on how to even tackle all these uh, development issues that are impacting indigenous small governments. And along the way, we started hearing, uh, well, it wasn't me, but it was my uh, boss, uh, Peter Redverse, who started getting grumblings for an Indigenous Guardian program. And that was because of what was happening in Australia with their Aboriginal uh, Guardian program. Like it, it, the, ab- the Australian Aboriginal program was just became like the building block and the framework for what we were doing here in Canada. And for your listeners, the Aboriginal Guardian program was an idea put forward that we can use uh, traditional knowledge and practices and uh, basically use them to create uh, rangers or coordinators or on the land guardians to basically manage uh, wildlife, lands, resources, uh, water management, like these things that are really important for environment, like the environmental sector of a government, but are just incredibly lacking 
with like both uh, capacity and uh, funding. And so it was just like a it was just like a big boom because suddenly a lot of these uh, really poor communities had uh, an economy now. They had people with money to basically bring their small towns to life. Like people suddenly learned job skills so they could pursue jobs, uh, like or pursue like education after the fact. And it, it was such a great help to the community. It was such a great help to the local environment sector that it just became the framework that we use in Canada. So we decided that, uh, I think it was year three or four when we decided that we we're going to be pursuing that. And it was another two years after that, like of planning, like or not two years, just a year after that before we finally became known as the uh, Nahande Keots and D guardianship or guardians. And uh, it was a... Uh, it was a long haul. It, it took a lot of work to get to that point. It, it, was, it wasn't just like a, one day we woke up and we're like, yeah, we're going to be doing this. We, we, if we wanted it to succeed like long term, we needed to do the we needed to design our own program from the ground up. We needed to uh, establish goals that we wanted to achieve, like and also what we wanted to do. There are the problems of if we want to be enforcement or like uh, compliance enforcement, like in terms of like having actual like a. Uh, guardians who could arrest people or like uh deliver fines but there's a whole lot of legal uh problems that come with that and a whole lot more legal hurdles to get to that point compliance would basically the easiest and quickest route that we could go but it's not like you can like give fines to people who are poachers or who are illegally like building cabins out in the wilderness or imp negatively impacting uh local wildlife by over harvesting or like uh just leaving their catch out <laughs> after mm -hmm. taking like their trophies, like it, like there was a whole bunch of hurdles that we had to uh, address before we even began to think about launching. The um, our last podcast was just on like some elk management um, science in Ontario, and well, you know that's quite a, a broad project in and of itself. It's interesting to hear you talk about the the guardianship programs, Jeff, because um. It almost seems like it's a completely blank canvas in some ways, and you you have to fill out. There's a lot of painting that needs to be done in order to 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 get the vision there and uh, and to get a, a plan that's going to benefit the community. It, um, so it sounds like there's not just a lot of work needed to be done to to implement the model, but to even conceptualize the model seemed like a a, a lot of legwork in and of itself. Oh yeah, it was. Um... That first year, I'm not sure what it is now, if they have like a framework that uh, indigenous governments can just buy into or like uh, look over. But when it, when it first started, it was just like, we're going to have to design what we even want it to look like. It, it was like, <laughs> it was like financing a whole new government structure all over again, like finding pots of money to fund our own projects, what kind of projects we wanted to do, like how to, we can how we can get more like a build more capacity in the community, how we can get more, uh, uh, oh, what's that word? How we can get more <sighs> occupancy? No, more presence out into our own traditional territory. That's oh, okay, yeah. So that we can like establish ourselves as being like a management uh, sector or like managing our own traditional territory and our own resources, mm -hmm. which did really lend itself later because uh because we had done all that homework and we had like collected all our data and like structured it the moment that it came to challenging uh any decisions on the gnwt's part like uh developing a mine like next to the great lake or opening up uh oil truthing sites to find like pots of oil 
the government would say, well, here's what we know. And like, here's our data that's from like 90, like 92. And there's, there's not going to be a whole lot of impact in this area. And then uh, our community would go like, well, actually, here's the real environmental like data we have here. Are the different populations that are going to be affected by these projects here are like the here are the endangered species that live in that area. Uh, if you do develop here, here's like the here's like how far people are going to have to go in order to find uh, like wild foods to like for subsistence hunting. Like like having those uh, structures to protect yourself are like incredibly helpful. But yeah, there wasn't there was no ground there was no like year zero guidebook. We had to come up with all those on ourselves, and it, it was like a full year of visioning. And like working on something, and then you you get to like a model where you're like, I think this might be it, and then you you build on that, and you like try to develop it more, but you get to a point where like, oh, well, this is just going to become unmanageable. Like it's just going to become a beast of its own. <laughs> it's just going to become a white elephant. So you have to scrap that. That's yeah. like two and a half months worth of fishing gone. But you take some ideas to that, and you build on like a better model, and it's just like kind of trial and error before you get to like the actual. Uh, before you get to the actual point where you're uh can call yourself a indigenous guardian program it was like uh we worked with Dacho first nation in the northwest territories in order to come up with a joint uh, guardianship program we came up with a uh, nahande gates and the guardians and they came up with Dacho guardians and it was just like a we worked together and share information create like a hub network of uh, a hub database of information for the environment uh impacts like anything that we can think of any information that would be important to capture so we can share like with each other and create this really holistic network of uh shared impacts in our environment because an oil spill down south will definitely impact the environment up north so like that that was like one of the (laughs) one of the things we had to come up with like a guardianship program won't succeed on a holistic level if you're not getting some like a uh, coordination with your uh, sister territories so like uh yeah. Dacho first station fort smith kakiza uh north even yellowknife in some cases sharing our data like across uh borders and organizations we had to you have to like have some form of like coordination and like compatibility with other programs mm-hmm. the one one article uh that tristan had sent that uh for reference, when you're talking about sharing sharing data and and how it's connecting you to these other communities was, and it was talking about the uh, the uh, white-breasted goose. Is that correct? And how no. now you guys are connecting to like I mean, along with uh, the the migratory game bird uh, side of things, like with Mexico and the states and and all sorts of things. So those. It's not you're you're not even uh, the 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 reach here that you guys deal with or that that you've kind of curated is is international. Yeah, uh, it, like <laughs> well, uh, like uh, just to preface this, I'm really sorry, listeners, if we're just hopping all over the place. But the uh, Indigenous Guardian program is holistic in nature, so you're just you're, you're bouncing everywhere and you're you're talking about different topics and i swear they're all gonna like line up at the end when you get to that point but yeah like uh you have 
this the idea that we came up with was that we can't just rely on information like coming from our community because we don't have any scientists or researchers so what we can do is that we can work with uh, master students trying to work or working on their master's thesis for environmentalism for biomonitoring or any of these other projects or like uh uh, the population counts or even something as simple as like the health of fish like you can still get useful data from those and the the the, the main problem that we had was that uh researchers would come in they would collect their data and then they would leave and then maybe two or three years later we'll get a paper and it will just have like a whole bunch of knowledge that we don't really know how to translate or like the paper was used to further their own career or further their own needs and it was just like a it was an ineffective model for bringing funding for these programs in the 90s and the early 2000s and so with the guardianship program we had like a we had a means of to have a point of contact we had a means to simplify the uh we were basically trained people or people my age who were bound to go to school who had the experience with technology and knew how to like navigate this kind of language and basically translate it to a way that could be delivered to uh non uh not english speakers <laughs> and that was that was basically my job to translate the intent of what this program meant and simplify it in a way that's both deliverable and true to the original uh research which was uh absolute hell <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so we we would have to uh pull uh like public public information like uh uh research of migratory patterns for birds from like the source location where they would like do their own uh study at where they roosted over the overwintered and then we'd have to we'd build that to build like a more holistic and true database to what these creatures were doing or what these creatures what these what the wildlife were doing in their own habitats how they're interacting where they would move and get like a better idea of like their behavior and habits and like how we can lessen our own impacts to it as well as get more accurate counts it was like a pretty big pretty big overview it yeah and it's 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 cool because you mentioned the the holistic nature of it a few times jeff and it every time i i look into it a little bit more that just keeps making more and more sense to me of what's actually happening because um even just from our conversation here now you're you're telling me that you know you're the community is getting more ownership not only over the data they collect but what the data that's getting put out there um you know how that data is being used how that research is being used um, and also like the skills and capacity being re-injected into the community and the community being recognized for the skills and capacity that it has as well. Um, which is maybe when I think about it, perhaps radically different than the way some other research has been done in the past. Um, I was going to ask initially, <laughs> like why go through all the work of, um, applying and you know trying to conceptualize what an indigenous guardianship program is but it the more we chat the the more apparent it is here that you know there's there's a lot of value in these programs um and but i'm guessing there's even more than what we just listed and talked about there um it seems like we're hinting at you know kind of um not just uh scientific data and um research expertise but actual community building and um uh, I, I believe the word is sovereignty in some some extent here as well too. Yes. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, sovereignty is like the major sticking point for a lot of indigenous governments or organizations or like people all over the world. Like 
being able to determine your own fate as well as like what roles you want to pursue and like it <laughs> we when i say it like that it sounds like a super villain like yes we want to we want to create our own laws and like live in a really archaic society We're like no we just want the freedom to decide to do with like you know be happy <laughs> like mm. there, there there's a whole lot of uh major sticking points and grinding points with a uh, with modern western culture that is kind of grading but it's like a uh, being i i mean it, it took a while for like uh for <laughs> gay rights and lgbt rights for to become like a moderately accepted but like that just doesn't exist in my culture it's just like a i mean like they do exist rights in my culture but it's more like a it's structured differently it's more mm. like a yeah can they hunt can they survive can they keep their friends alive then they're okay by us we don't really care what you call yourselves or what you identify with we recognize you as a person right and so Side note, that's also why a whole bunch of uh, LGBT representation exists in the North, because it meshes really well with uh, indigenous culture. It just does. <laughs> people yeah. being recognized as people. But an aside from that would be, um, yeah, sovereignty. Deciding what we want to do with our own lives as well as like have control of our own fates. Like, the last 200 years, <laughs> the last few centuries haven't been... Uh, I haven't been very kind to my people. <laughs> so <laughs> being able to choose where we can go in the end point, as well as like building a secure future for our uh, children and their children or whoever else comes after us, our descendants, is like incredibly important. Like having mm -hmm. a place for our children to hunt where we hunted, to have like uh, people use the same resources that we had access to. It's just like maintaining that level of well, life and happiness that we've had for generations, for thousands of years. And, uh, and yeah, back to Indigenous Guardians. Like, there's really, you can, it, the program could be anything that you want to. It's sure it's a blank slate, but also that means it's more flexible and you can like design it specifically to fit your own community. And that's the great thing. Like, uh, Noodle Elite, I'm pretty sure, like their Indigenous Guardian program, the last time that I heard of it, they were mostly just uh, compliance officers, like watching uh, watching power plants, like uh, water dams, ensuring that they're being safe, monitored and kept safe, like they were environmental compliance agents. It was amazing. And others were doing fishery management, others were focusing solely on like caribou management, and it can just be whatever you want to be and what you want to devote all your resources to, and you can specifically design it to just be that. Like some people work in offices, some people work in like a, a rented office space and work out of that. Other people mostly spend a lot of their time out in the field helping ENR, Environmental National Resources, or AROM. Like it's, uh, it's a really mixed bag and you can really just do whatever you want with it. And if you can get to the point where you can put people onto, like on the ground in your uniform, like performing the job that you designed it to, that's a win. Like it is a major win, and it's a huge fight to get to up up to that point. I think I think it's it's uh, super interesting, and, and uh, I enjoy listening to um, where this all came from for for you, and and how you helped build this up. Because um, over the last couple of years here. Uh, I've I've come stumbled across uh, the odd news article 
uh, referencing Guardians, and uh, in in the cases that I've I've read, it's been in uh, a community called uh, Grand Rapids, which which is a heavy fishing community here in Manitoba, and uh, the Guardians are advocating for you know proper um, fish management and uh, just making sure the fishery is uh, people are respecting it and uh, and uh, maintaining its health. So. Um, having this come all around for me right now is a pretty pretty cool moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, like it just goes back to having autonomy to manage your own conser- like conservation in your territory. It's it's incredibly important. It's also a major. I think there was a term that like passed by my desk when I was still working this job called climate anxiety. Like, uh, at first I was just like I scoffed at it like climate anxiety. That's so silly but the idea is that uh, a lot of indigenous people like or elders see are worried about the like climate change and are worried that their children aren't going to be able to hunt or like harvest uh, wild game in the places that they did when they were young and that these places will stop existing so and a major way to alleviate that uh, anxiety in elders was to basically like have programming to so that they can uh or having programming so that you can basically give them a platform to teach you what they've learned to like not only their children but to other people like it, th- there was a major project that happened in 2014 that like i i actually still have it with me i keep it with me because there's a bunch of elders uh who helped that project and uh, are no longer here and i like i sometimes open that book and like i read their words and it just uh warms my heart knowing that there's something there's something about them that's like uh immortalized i still have like stories forever but seeing pictures of them like out in the field like helping like teach my nieces and nephews or like people my age uh about uh what you can find how to survive and like imparting important knowledge of like location pathfinding it's just uh, it's hard to explain it's really securing (laughs) Jeff, I, I feel a lot of parallels to what you're saying, though, in a, in, in a lot of ways. And it's, a lot of it is how I, I feel connected to our company here, to Panoramic. And um, we don't have a guardianship program that I know of, at least of where we harvest. But I can tell you that um, things that I resonate with is that, you know, that, that er- those areas are very dear to me. I do want to say in how those areas are managed and like how resources are extracted and whatnot there and how those lands are used and i also want them to be there for my kids to use so like i i can really feel you on the message here of what you know the underlying intentions of these programs are and it's that it's the have a say and carry things forward for not yourself but uh generations to come right oh yeah and uh like lending itself back to the holistic nature of indigenous programs like uh during my during my time there like i used that as like a a vehicle to uh help address a lot of problems with uh intergenerational trauma like the the big scary shadow residential school hang over every indigenous person's head like uh addressing that like the inability to express emotion not the inability but like the fear of address like expressing emotions in a healthy and like positive manner like uh there were there are a lot of examples about that where like uh i think my my favorite story was that uh 
I helped develop the wellness plan for my community at my ten as a tenure of Indigenous Guardian program. And uh <laughs> the hat I wore specifically was a community development or a community planner. And the the idea was that, well, I don't know a lot about uh intergenerational trauma or like uh I'm not really emotionally literate, so I'll design a program I would like to take. <laughs> and then like tackle the problem of uh, intergenerational trauma because I, I don't want to structure any programs specifically towards like residential school because the moment people hear that word it just like it hits a switch and they're like I don't want anything to do with that yeah. less about people not wanting to address it but more about just like traumatic response to seeing that or hearing it so we decided that like a major portion of our culture requires like emotional literacy because a lot of the language that we use requires an emotional basis for it to be properly translated like emotional basis for words and like how you express the words and how you like intone in them like or what words <laughs> or what emotion or like power you put behind them to impart meaning Interesting. And so we uh <laughs> i helped design a program called emotional literacy and i structure it in a way that like all right Put now put on the paper that like the course is going to be for like three days. The course the 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 workshop is going to be for three days, and uh, put on it employees only, so that uh, <laughs> when people from the village read employees only, they're going to get one. They're going to get mad that the people at the band office are putting on a program just for themselves. <laughs> Two, the band is paying for this. I'm going to go. They said they have food. <laughs> because I'm going to go. And then so it was just like packed like shoulder to shoulder. And like everybody was learning about like uh, emotional literacy, intergenerational trauma, like how to properly pause, what positive emotions would look like. I, I just tricked everyone into like uh, addressing these like key issues that were like mitigating people learning or expressing the language. And then you're just like, ha ha, you fell right for it. And then uh hook, line and stinker. And then, uh, that's good. Yeah, we might have to get you to coordinate a few of our like uh, wildlife conservation <laughs> dinners here because sometimes those those uh, volunteer meetings aren't packed. Let's just put it that way. Oh yeah, and then uh, I mean, speaking of volunteer dinners, because I because I people had known me as being like an indigenous guardian, they knew that like I was putting on programming for the community. Uh, I helped create the uh, I helped uh, uh, recreate the elder society. Uh, Yamajakwe, uh, or no, is that a building? I can't remember. Yamajakwe means just like old man house. <laughs> and then uh, help re help reform the uh, wellness committee, help reform the education committee, and then like put all these program pr brought all this programming into the community. It's how I got funding to host the intergenerational uh, the intergenerational trauma workshop. Was it put me put my name in contact with another person, like making another connection? Like it's a very holistic program. You don't know exactly where it's going to go, but you know that if you pursue something, you're going to find something that is eventually going to help your program. And so, I put off, I put on all these committees. I I created, I helped create all these committees after for like years. I uh, hosted workshops. I was traveling to conventions, like talking about uh, food security, cultural identity, uh, cultural spirituality, like 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 uh, indigenous representation, inter intergenerational trauma, emotional literacy, food security, lands. Like people had, like because I was doing this job, people had gotten an idea of who I was, like what I was doing. So if I put on any programming, they would like lend me their trust. 
and then I like trust that I wasn't just doing this to make a quick buck or that I wasn't just doing this to create like a, a paycheck, which is the general consensus with anybody living in a small town with a small indigenous government is just like, oh, they're just doing it to make a quick buck. And like, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work to get that trust and to get that like level of uh, rapport with people. And so uh, the job helped me do amazing things for my community. Like I, like it, it, I don't think with I don't think with uh without indigenous uh, guardians I I wouldn't have been able to do like half of what I done. A lot of it I could have done like just like groundwork or grassroots, but I wouldn't have known how to start. I wouldn't know how to pursue any of this. It just put me on like a it put me on like a not a fast track, but a track to learn what I needed to in order to make my home better. It, like also the importance of food and like the importance of the ecosystem and like all of this is just connected with each other. Like how we, what we eat, how we feel, like where we go, like where we live, the environment around us, like it's all tied together intrinsically, our emotional state, the friends we have, the relationships. And like, it was just, we needed a program that could knit all these far off things together and like create, uh, and then also use it to go on the land and uh, basically collect data and, help get our presence up and practice sovereignty it was a it was a massive undertaking like a lot of meetings a lot of visioning processes i've helped uh, design the outfits that we wore the uniform what we called ourselves like i was there from the ground floor from like year zero to our eventual launch it was uh it was a lot of work <laughs> i did a lot of stuff at that time i i basically just did not uh i didn't have a day off other than like holidays and christmas <laughs> Wow. You mentioned uh, too that they dropped the word there, food security. And um, obviously, uh, I mean, goal or target of what was going on there. But, and I deal with it quite a bit in the work that I do too. But there's also this different notion that I was reading to it, and it's called food sovereignty. Can you kind of explain to me the difference between like what food, like food security is you, you, you have enough food that you're not living in like uh an area where you're going to be hungry or in poverty right but what what's uh what's food sovereignty how's that different we don't want people uh, going hungry what's, what's food sovereignty food sovereignty would mean that like you can basically survive without needing to rely on uh on the current supply and distribution uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of like prices in the northwest territories but prices for foodstuffs gets incredibly expensive like a one liter of orange juice can cost you anywhere from $20. A tray of strawberries can cost you pretty much the same, like $30 for a package of grapes. And usually the stuff is pretty close to expiration or like past expiration. The further north you get, the more that expiration date becomes like a, becomes like a guideline instead of a rule. And so yeah. like a food sovereignty would be the ability to feed your own people without relying on that supply and distribution. Because a lot of these communities are, like low income, low wage, low earning, and uh, are below are like below or on the poverty line. So a lot of money just gets set towards paying your electricity bill because those are expensive to the north, paying your water bill because those are expensive to the north, paying your sewage bill because there's permafrost and you don't have a septic tank in the ground. You have a septic tank just like hanging right next to your house. Like so you're managing a lot of like you're managing a lot on like a minimum wage or like dealing with the high cost of living up in the north. So 
guaranteed there are a few nights where you go hungry or you have to send your kids to bed with like toast or porridge and hope that like saves them long enough for you make it to like payday rely on like a harvesting economy like basically going out to harvest wild game in order to supplement your food relying on like wild food uh, like wild tubers uh like identifying which berries are safe to eat, which foods like mushrooms are safe to harvest, things like that, things to supplement your uh, food intake. And then basically, in our case, it was the idea was to set up like a hunting economy. So we already had it in our community where go out and they would like down a moose or down like a caribou if they were lucky to find one that had wandered this far. <laughs> and uh, bring it back and divvy it up and that basically gave them their uh, protein for the week. And it's $50 you're not spending that can go towards things like uh, paying, buying gas, ensuring that your kids have fresh clothes or school supplies, like just peace of mind stuff that basically makes life just all that more, more bearable. Uh, I mean, you, can, you have to take what you can get and food sovereignty was a way to like kind of reduce the impact of uh, living in a low wage or, <laughs> or a low wage or a high cost of living environment. Mm-hmm. And so ensuring that people don't have to go hungry. Like it's also like managing your own uh, wildlife and wild game and the environment and ecosystem in your area to ensure that uh, anything that may negatively impact them won't cause a crisis for your people <laughs> and impacting like their ability to subsist. For, like, right the foreseeable future so you you and that or your community and those those wildlife populations are obviously deeper deeply interconnected um and even some of the numbers i was looking at and um the some of the presentations you had shared like the not only do you get more control back over where your your food is coming from but the the economics of it were drastically better as you've identified and the, the food quality was drastically better as well, too, if, if they were looking at, like, quality of protein and uh, the actual nutrition of the food. And um, I found a link together where you mentioned, like, other things in life or you know, just take care of other elements of their life as well. Um, so I think we keep circling back to, like, yeah. the holistic nature of all the work that's yeah. been done here. Like, but, uh, uh, because... Yeah. Uh, People like I don't want to use the term poor people, but people who have like people who are in the poverty line or a low wage earner, like they make terrible citizens because they don't pay attention to they don't pay attention to the government. They don't pay attention to like voting. They don't pay attention to the future. They don't pay attention to climate change because really they're not stupid. They just have no time. Their time has to be sent towards like working to ensure their kids can like eat their kids have clothes and their kids have shelter or they have shelter they have food they have clothes like everything long term that is really important for a citizen to keep in mind like it just doesn't exist if you're all your problems are like immediate like i'm going to lose my house or i'm going to lose power like tomorrow and i have to come up with a fix today everything is just a crisis after crisis after crisis so uh indigenous guardians like are creating small uh it's basically small startup economies where people suddenly have like suddenly more money because they can rely on somebody going out being in, in some cases being paid to go harvest food for the community that gets divvied out to everybody like food that doesn't have to go towards like stores or like 
that does have to go towards stores and can go tools think that makes their lives a little bit better makes their lives a little bit bearable there is also the problem with uh a lot of people would leave uh town to go buy foods down south and so that just impacted a lot of our our, our sister town uh, hay river because my community was called new village and we lived right across the river from them with that a lot of people would go down south to alberta at a high level to buy their groceries because it was cheaper and then drive all the way back so a lot of that money wasn't going back into the local economy driving up prices so a lot of people on the low wage earners get side basically just being outpriced on like food stuffs and like being able to buy something like hey river isn't all that far like far north but prices still got really crazy up there so any which way we could to put money back into the community to into like our local store or to like the town right next to us to ensure that prices would more or less stay stable or if not maybe somebody could afford like new clothes for the kids or before to pay a uh, power like just it's pretty heartbreaking when you think about it because like the some conversations would just be like yeah i don't know if i like can keep my house up. like i owe, i still owe 20 dollars to housing and it's just like that's in your head like this is a modern world this is a modern country like that's just that's a joke that's like a stupid joke but like no those were real conversations that were happening <laughs> like uh, on the reserve that I grew up on. And so like just a few extra dollars would more or less give people peace of mind. And like we, we saw it, like uh, a lot of those committees that I helped create wouldn't have even existed in the first place if like people just didn't have a little bit extra time to lend themselves to long-term problems. Like the wellness committee, the education committee, the elder society, none of those would have taken off if everybody's problems were still like day to day. So really, it's just, again, the, the program has to be interconnected and holistic because you're dealing with human beings. There's nothing about us that's two-dimensional. Like, we're complex. <laughs> yeah. So our, our relationship to the land and wildlife um, and how we, how we harvest, how we live, is, is deeply connected to our relationship to each other as human beings and citizens in in our own community however big that community is whether it's a you know a smaller more rural town or if it's we're talking canada wide even here i'm sure we could expand the example to to that oh yeah and then uh <laughs> another like on the land and wildlife part that we a, a really interesting note was that uh we were getting problems with wolves coming into our town <laughs> like wolves like wolves like searching for food and like ranging out further and further and further and then basically just a side note it, it's not as scary as i make it sound like wolves were coming into a hunting community where people where there are more rifles than there are people so yeah uh, it was a stupid move on their part i mean that that put more money into the local harvester po like population in our community <laughs> but is it is it a timber wolf there or a gray wolf or what uh, uh... gray wolves yeah but uh we we identified that like well they're missing their key competitors and that's why they're just that's why they're putting a lot of this stress on uh the local wildlife like eating everything they can and that's us that's our community members like we don't have hunters going out in like groups anymore like semi-nomadic in nature like our people were semi-nomadic in nature they would travel like on set paths and that would be our territory where we would range and we'd have no problems with wolves because that was our territory they knew that it was safe for, for them when we were there but we're all static now i mean it's the modern day like it's hard to be semi-nomadic in like the modern day world so like their populations were uh 
their population were was exploding because they're canines like they come out by the litter and they were just coming into our town because they're eating themselves out of house and home their population was just like uncontrollable and so one thing we identify is that we need more presence on the land so uh thankfully we didn't have to come up with a fix for that we already had the hunters association which were basically planning out hunts and sending people out into the land and like buying like pay, like buying people gas and stuff like that also another thing, like the indigenous guardians allowed people to buy gas so that they didn't have to rely on the hunting association because they had surplus money they had disposable income they could go out for like a week and get their own food so that they suddenly had more means for money to take trips to go on vacation like it, it was a huge thing i mean in the north the prices for food are so bad it's cheaper to buy bullets <laughs> <laughs> that yeah that uh, i've i've felt that pinch before too yeah chase were you gonna were you gonna hop on there for a second i, I was just <clears throat> curious um how the gas prices reflect up there too for the uh for your northern community uh they were really cheap in my community uh tax free oh nice <laughs> viewers there could, you go viewers couldn't see that but i did like a i did like a gun <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah like uh Perks of being indigenous, like uh, tax-free gas, mm-hmm. the prices never fluctuate. Also, you get like some money back if you uh, buy a lot of gas. So, bonus, bonus, bonus. Not that I had no problems with gas, but it's usually above like a dollar forty to a dollar seventy-five. <laughs> so, <laughs> still yeah. pretty high. But yeah, that that would be high for here. So, just to be clear on, we're, <laughs> I think we're at about a buck fifteen right now, and we're and I see some people wincing already. So. Um, yeah. yeah it's uh i don't think we ever got close to go two dollars but we got we got past 50 i'm pretty sure in oh, some wow. cases yeah and what it sounds like here is what's kind of happening in the background or maybe it's even in the foreground of all this is that um it's what's happening with the guardian program it's, or at least some of them is this merger of like um maybe taking of what what's worked in the past the more traditional styles and uh with modern science and kind of blending them together to to make a model that really serves the community um but is it kind of a hybrid jeff or like was that fair to describe it that way yeah it's definitely a hybrid i mean uh like traditional we we call it the term we use tk tk traditional knowledge and traditional knowledge was just like scoffed at for like centuries for like hundreds of years and uh it's only just recently in the last decade or so that people have started taking traditional knowledge a lot more serious i mean the famous story i keep lending onto was uh the terran erebus you know those two ships looking for the northwest passage like for for cent for like hundreds of years people were saying that like yeah like it's mysterious where those ships like disappear to we'll never find them like they're gone forever in the ice in somewhere in the northwest passage meanwhile a lot of the inuit population up there were like yeah, we know exactly where it is. Like we take our kids there sometimes, like on our hunting trips, and like their kids play on the mast sticking out of the ice. It's like really fun. And people were for years were just like, ah, these these Inuit don't know what they're talking about. They're crazy. The Terran Erebus are lost to time forever. They wouldn't even be over top the ice. And it was like 2013, 2014 when somebody was just like, All right, take us to it, just like on a whim. And they found it. And now it's become like a world heritage site. Like it's <laughs> it it it, it it blows my mind just like yeah i mean people have lived here for thousands tens of thousands of years like it's or like thousands of years not tens of thousands 
for thousands of years. Like we kind of know what's happening here. We understand what's happening here. It's pretty uh it's pretty apparent <laughs> that, you know, it looks like it looks like untamed wilderness to you, but to us it looks like home and it has these very specific features that we can recognize. That looks like a, just a bunch of trees. Well, I can see a few trails in there, and I know exactly where the trails are. It's just like translating a different language. So that's basically all it is. It's not something mystical, like, oh, look, they know the secrets of the land. Like, no, we've just, like, you go camping around the same place your entire life. You're going to notice which rocks grow where, and where you are, regardless. Like, it, uh, and it, like to get to that point where it's like accepted as like being important and intrinsic to like land development or environmental management or small indigenous governments, we're just like like this big light bulb moment for for like Western governments. But for us, it was just like finally, <laughs> damn. <laughs> so like uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of our data like reflects both traditional knowledge and uh, scientific knowledge because. You're not going to do an accurate moose count if you don't know where the moose live. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if we if we don't take you to where they nest and where they bed, you a lot of that important detail like is just not going to be captured. Like you're not going to have a really good project. You're just going to be like we saw 12 moose and we downed one and we took a look at its insides and we determined that we couldn't find a whole lot of biocontaminants into it because our sample size is too small and we're going to try again next year. No, <laughs> that's not how that's not how any of this should work. No. So having like a model to both work with uh, researchers from the South as well as like be able to have that partnership and that bargaining ground, like, yeah, I mean, you need to work with us if you want to collect your data and we want your data. So don't give it to us three years from now. Like work with us as you're developing it and we'll tell you what you need to know, and we'll even take you to where you need to go so you can capture that knowledge. So even getting that relationship, that rapport with other like uh, organizations or researching entities, which is like a major step up. I mean, with Indigenous Guardians, we had like a real ability to voice what we needed and what we wanted, as well as like work with who we wanted to. And it, there's only, there hasn't actually been any... Uh, there hasn't actually been any uh, organizations that I can think of where we've really regretted it since. It's like we would work with like universities where they would take all their information, like go down south and like give us like kind of a really high end <laughs> report. Like, well, we can't read it. Right. the The data just wasn't the research and the data just wasn't um, yeah pre- presented in a way that was helpful. Yeah, uh, and then uh, there was also the problem with like a. Uh, a lot of people my age were going to school and then just not coming back because they could find a better job down south where the cost of living was was like wasn't so high. But with Indigenous Guardians, we could offer people like jobs to come back. And the the argument that we kept hearing at the beginning was like nobody's going to come back for like this. Like everybody who left like uh, like made is making like good money down south and they're never going to come back. But the moment we started it, and then we had like a whole bunch of people just like voice like, "Oh, hey, you're doing this. Like, this is their home. This is where your children grew up. This is where you raised them. Of course, they're going to come back. Of course, they're mm-hmm. going to come back to help their home like prosper and like succeed." Like, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, off-reserve community members who I'd never talked to before, who I suddenly was talking to before because now they had an avenue to lend their expertise and their knowledge and their capacity in some cases. Yeah, 
it was never about what the 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 nature of the land or anything was like was up was up there like it was about opportunity really yeah it was like a, like people weren't leaving i mean there are a lot of reasons to leave the northwest yeah. territories i think a lot of uh like the big spooky shadow of residential schools like hanging over everybody but like drugs addictions like it's just a rough place and takes a lot of work in order to develop for like better access to anything to like services to healthcare to uh and there are just no jobs up there like to survive mm -hmm. you basically have to be okay with working seasonal jobs and then just like subsist hunting for like months after the words or months after the fact or you go down south and you go to school and find a better job like where it is more clearly developed and designed but like it's not like people left and were like good riddance like, no it's home like it's mm -hmm. where their ancestors are of course they're going to go back to help yeah and mm -hmm. the, the thing is about like which really uh is shining out to me about the like the the program the guardians here that, that you've helped create is the the really community-based work that you've been doing and how it almost seems like the entire community is coming together and uh, going beyond the community, um, obviously. But that community um, involvement where an individual like yourself can go up there to work and know that you're benefiting the community is, is huge for not only like uh, uh, increasing... Um, just a better life for those people that want to be employed up there but uh i mean just increasing that community as well oh yeah i mean and there's there's a lot to be said about the technical skills that you get from being an indigenous guardian i mean uh again back to traditional knowledge not being respected a lot like on the land skills like hunting tracking all those things those are just like really hyper specialized office skills <laughs> I mean, like hunting, tracking, like uh, reading wind, water, and wave, those could easily be translated into working with Microsoft Word, answering emails, or like even working in office and or computer, which boggles my mind. But also at the same time, it's totally true because when you're working as an indigenous guardian, it's just like focusing your focusing those skills towards working in an office environment, and it's it's not that seamless. But then again, learning new skills isn't all that seamless anyway. But it's a lot better than just like never learning in the first place. I mean, I went into I went into that job like with a lot of traditional abilities and skills, but like no office knowledge. And suddenly, a year later, I was traveling the country giving talks about like these different subjects I was really uh, impassioned about. Like it gave me a real way to channel my <laughs> my passion as well as like educate me on like how these processes worked. Well, we're sitting here talking over uh, Skype right now, talking about hunting. So yeah, there's there's a blend of skills, I'll say. And I also want to mention that uh, they are teaching ecologists at the U of M, or they're making the ecologists hunt now at the U of M every once in a while. They uh, they figured out that uh, maybe they're not making them, but Delta offers a course that could uh, that gives them the opportunity to hunt because they were starting to recognize that a lot of people coming out of school. Uh, with formal training in biology weren't necessarily connected to what it meant to be a hunter or uh, a harvester in a lot of ways. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, there, there's a lot of media where, where like, uh, hunting is just seen as, like, beating your chest and, like, yeah, killing something 
like being malicious, but no, there, there's a real practice that goes into it. It's not about any of that. It's about subsistence and respect to what you're taking from nature. At least in my community, it was imp incredibly important to become a subsistence hunter. Like there was no like you can't be a vegetarian in the north because it's expensive to be a vegetarian even in the south. Like those options just don't exist up in the north. Like subsistence hunting is incredibly important just for a hunting economy, for a bartering trade economy. But also just the different practices that go into it because you are definitely taking something out of nature and it's a beautiful thing you're taking out of nature and you have to respect that you have to do so to survive because what are you going to do die no you're going to fight and you're going to live for as long as you can and that that case that requires you to hunt and there's a real beautiful relationship that goes towards it because then suddenly it becomes less it's it's not malicious at all actually like not in any sense because then you see the gravity of what you're doing to maintain that that creatures that wildlife that animals integrity their environment like they're here just as much as you are like you have to you have to respect where they're living their environment so that you have an impact on that and so everything just starts focusing towards having less of an impact on that you become like a really great environmentalist because suddenly you recognize that like there's a whole bunch of stuff i shouldn't do there's a whole bunch of practices that i should keep aware of I mean, it just goes hand in hand, uh, back to the holistic nature of everything. <laughs> like, it's it's important to recognize your role in like life, and hunting as an indigenous man is just like totally in keeping with that. It it keeps you grounded. It shows you where you are in like the web of life, your relation to everything, the ground you walk, the animals you harvest, the food you eat, the places you go, the people you meet. Like, it's all in interconnected like it's all just one really big complicated web that's interesting that that rides pretty true with uh with Trist tristan talks about this quite a bit and and uh correct me if i if i get this wrong at all but just your the way uh you explain it is like the the your um connection to hunting and uh you know how what what kind of impact and and how a human being is interconnected to those animals and what role we play on the landscape. Um, oh yeah. The, uh, so it lines up very close to almost pretty much exactly what you're saying there too. So yeah. the, uh, the phrase I use is Dene Naude, which means in tune with nature. And then uh, it's similar to the Lakota's phrase, Yasin, all my relations. And it's just like, it's, it's not all my relations simply in my family and friends, but like in relation to reality and where I, where my place is in it. Dene they is like the nature or in tune with nature or in tune with the nature of reality. Like it's recognizing that you intrinsically have these connections to everything around you, like the air you breathe, the clothes you wear, the places you go, the people you meet, the ground you step on, the rocks you kick, like everything you do has small little impacts on reality around you. And like, it's, it, it's incredibly like OCD you're keeping track of like all these different uh, interactions in your head and it's not healthy at all but also at the same time like <laughs> it's totally what reality is <laughs> like uh it just it just like creates this really complicated and overhead view of life and really it just it slows you down and it grounds you so that you don't just like you're not just like out there uh, rock burning any bridges or rocking any uh, boats you're just there like grounded as a human being 
like sharing experiences with other human beings and recognizing them as like their own complex beings going on with their own different connections and then even then like flooding out and like you don't exactly know how far your actions are going to lend itself like and so back to the holistic nature of the indigenous guardian program like everything is this complicated because everything is that complicated like everything you do is that complicated and it's it was a rewarding experience i mean i uh i left that position because it was making me lose my hair but (laughs) (laughs) now after that uh now after everything is said done like i just i i just remember all the all the work i put into it like all the pride i felt like seeing it succeed and like seeing actual Nahande Chaos and the Guardians like going out in the field and like it it like it wouldn't have done it any better if I'd stayed there for like X amount of years collecting a paycheck because my role was done. And then oh. now I move on to the next thing. Jeff, I wanna I wanna get back to where that program is in a minute here. <laughs> I'm 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 sure we'll we'll get there without question but I, I i do have another question for you and it it's related to kind of identity and i'm not sure what your experience has been in toronto but i know even in manitoba here it can be kind of a radical thing to admit that you are a hunter in some circles we'll say um, i i get the feeling that in in dene culture that it would saying you're a hunter would not really mean much at all you wouldn't be a hunter it sounds like any more than you'd be a father or a brother like it just it seems like it's so woven into um the community there that it just it's just a another thing or another day at the at the office (laughs) yeah to to say the least the longer i'm here the more i understand why uh, some groups would be anti-hunter. It's not just just the simple act of not wanting to spread more misery. <laughs> like in, industrial, like industrial farms and everything have pretty soured the idea of like the meat industry, and I can see why. It's pretty grotesque. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that it's cheaper, I might actually just become a vegetarian because hunting just doesn't exist down here. Mm. <laughs> but up north, it's up north. It's less about a choice and more just survival. Are are you going to work for like a? All right, let's say you're making a twenty four dollars an hour, and tax free, and you work like forty eight hours, like a week, like full overtime, and you're pulling checks, are about like thirty two hundred, and a lot of that's going towards uh, your rent. Rent could it be anywhere from seventeen hundred to uh, two thousand, <laughs> wow. and then you're paying for your vehicle payments. Uh, insurance is two thousand dollars a year uh your like uh your vehicle registration is like eighty dollars a year your license needs uh <laughs> your license needs yeah. to be re-upped otherwise you can't get that job because living in the northwest territories that's long distances you're driving half an hour to work and you're driving about half an hour home uh food is food like for the week could be anywhere from uh twelve hundred dollars for just like rice and just the bare necessities to survive to two hundred forty dollars a week uh if you have kids it's even more expensive because you've also got to pay to feed them you've got to pay to send them to school it's just like the the list just goes up and up and up and up and Mm -hmm. up and you basically just have to do what you can so a lot of people turn to like harvesting like 
there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of people from Ontario who actually moved to the north to escape like the cost of living down here because the minimum wage is higher up north and like you could basically just live six people in a small house and then just like be comfortable because it's a big house from the 80s and it's cold but there's enough room for it <laughs> for people and uh, I've, I've met a lot of uh, met a lot of Ontario people who were vegetarian because it's it's it, it can be a choice down here but have become like uh, basically omnivores when they move up there because it's more of a survival strategy. And also, you know, food humanely. Mm-hmm. And they know that the food is being harvested humanely. Uh, and I, I do know there's a major, there's a major difference uh, <laughs> in opinion on firearms. There's a huge like difference from like the North and the South. Again, in the North, everybody has a healthy respect for firearms. It's not uh, people go out and play with them because you don't play with them. They're not toys. I want to say that. They're not toys. They're tools. They're not even weapons. They're weapons Jeff, for the military. Jeff just pointed very assertively at the camera, too, just so everyone's <laughs> clear on where he stands on this. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, my family has, like, a has like a rifle that we keep in the family that's going to be uh, inherited by my mother. And then she's going to pass it on to me and I'm going to pass it on. No, <laughs> the firstborn might, if he even wants it, <laughs> but yeah. it's going to be, it's, it's going to be passed out. Like it's the family rifle. It's what kept my grandparents fed. It's what kept his parents fed. It's what kept like our entire family alive. There's a healthy and deep respect for these tools. We recognize that we take care of them and there's a whole lot of training into your family that goes into maintaining that level of care so that there there are no firearm accidents that happen in our community because of that there is a huge push on a community level to ensure that there's a whole bunch of there's a whole level of safety towards it you will get your butt beaten (laughs) if you uh are caught like wielding it like an idiot and so there's like a there's a large healthy and a bit of fear respect it goes into the firearm culture of the north. And there's some community, or there's some cases where people even have like community-based or community places where they can keep their firearms, remove them from their families, in a place that's safe and secure for their families to keep safe. And like, it's you're taught. It, uh, I was taught how to harp, like how to handle a rifle before I even learned how to ride a bike. <laughs> like it's it it the education was like huge. There's a big push towards it because it is a very big problem and it is a very big like uh danger to just raise people and to have people around this many firearms and here in the south there's just no real need for a firearm nobody's hunting nobody's going around most of the people who have firearms down here are either police or in some way form tied to crime (laughs) so i do understand that there's a major difference between the different cultures and also down here, like hunting is more regulated. Well, more regulated in the sense there's more people here. You have to be super committed and super rich if you want to go up to the north to hunt. <laughs> like here, it's more regulated and like there's more structure to it. So it's just different. That's I'm not That's saying that like how we do in the north is like better than how what's being done here in the south it's just a difference of culture yeah 
even even being down here, my my whole ideas of firearms have just like shifted radically, just because like there's no point of it here. <laughs> in the north, it would, in the north it was all just like my dream rifle was like a 1953 Lee Enfield uh, Mark IV Long Branch, just like an absolute beauty of a gun. Intermediate cartridge that you can down a moose kind of at medium range, and who cares if it runs through the bush? I mean, you're gonna walk after it until it dies. If it takes hours, if it takes a day, you're gonna do it. But you know, it's not going to take a day because you don't even get to hunt a moose until you're a full adult and you know how to hunt one. You do not let the animal suffer. I also just pointed at the screen again. Really <laughs> uh, and so, like, I, I daydreamed about this rifle for, like, years. But coming down here, it's just like, I haven't even thought about a firearm for, like, months. <laughs> it just doesn't exist down here. It doesn't need to exist down here because you have the choice. Mm. The conditions are that different, yeah. Um, and then, so circling back to the guardianship program, you'd mentioned that you kind of you're at the point where you had trained up and recruited, you know, just a, a whole team of guardians, and now they were doing the work in the community. Um, what was that feeling like, seeing like the kind of your kind of project just blossom like that, and have have the vision take off the way it did? Oh, uh, I I straight up cried. <laughs> like it, it was just like a like a huge burden, like a huge not a huge burden. It was just like a huge labor of love. And then like uh, when I'd left um when I had left the position, it was because I was financially secure and stable and could like move on, get find like a way better job. But then the pandemic hit. That never actually happened. I decided to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like uh, the my job like went straight to uh, community like years and was relying on like seasonal pay and seasonal jobs and seasonal positions in order to like keep his family fed keep his family housed keep his family like safe and secure and like ha even having that steady source of income is just going to be a huge boon for him because suddenly he can like do things that he's always wanted to do as like a family go on trips down south like to the big city take his kids to see the skyscrapers take his kids to like the ocean like all these avenues just suddenly open up and life suddenly is less terrible <laughs> yeah and then so where's the program at now uh where's not just where's it at now but like what are some of those successes I'm, i want to turn my our attention kind of to the conservation side of things like how, how the wildlife populations fared throughout the, the the entirety of the program here running what now a little over 10 years a little over mm, we started in 2016 so about five five or so okay um at the at one like the moment i left i basically just started off on a whole adventure and like bummed around for like a year during the pandemic couch surfing so i didn't really keep in touch with them but i do hear from the grapevine that they're doing really well like they're ho they're able to because they have more capacity in their community and uh a lot of uh other community members suddenly reached a point where they could look, well, I'm financially secure and stable and I don't need this job anymore. So they basically applied for school and are going for schooling and are hoping to come back. Like it created so much more opportunities for people my age. Like uh, one of my cousins, in fact, went to a school for counseling and therapy because he wants to go, he wants to go back to become like a therapist or a psychologist for the community. Like the, the amount of successes that just came out of it, like, people being able to feed their families, people like 
learning technical skills, uh, even like the elderly learning about how to use Facebook and technology so that they can be better connected with like family members down south, like far, far removed, like across the country, like the amount of technological like advancement we made was just like we we just like come out of the stone age and we're like out to the modern world like it it was phenomenal the amount of bridges that were not actual bridges but the amount of bridges that we were able to build between different organizations meant that people coming in after like taking our positions after us had like established connections that they didn't have to make that they could just like work on and develop like further beyond anything we could do because I mean, when I think about it, if I had stayed, I probably would have just been to, I probably would have just been stuck in that grind of being like, all right, we need to make it bigger. We need to make it like, we need to establish it higher. We need to like structure it more. We need to put more of this work into it. And it would just been like an endless drive. But as it is now, like we can, we have developed it. We've done all the groundwork and now people get to take it further than I ever could. And honestly, Mm. that it's, it's, the source of no amount of like security that <laughs> I have, I have no anxiety about leaving the project because we've done such a good job. Pat myself on the back. Thanks, Jeff. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, but really it's, it's a, like, it's a big point of pride for me. Like my community is well off than they were like six years ago. Like when I had joined, they were still recovering from like, declaring bankruptcy and like the community couldn't do anything for like it's uh, graduates because every year it would give them money to send them off to school or like as thanks for graduating or it would like uh give them like uh support for like government like how to find government funding and all these things but they just couldn't offer those services because they were fresh from bankruptcy and so seeing them like fresh from bankruptcy to like really uh negotiating with the federal government for like better treatment and like better control and like more sovereignty it's just like phenomenal like it's indescribable it's a major point of pride (laughs) wow i can't even it's hard for me to even conceive what that would feel like especially within like such a short timeline of uh, six years you there you said that's that's truly remarkable and um and i'm wondering like how are the how how were the wildlife populations because you mentioned you did some work um with you know like some some of the fish up there 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 was a wolf problem like did the guardianship program start to like impact that, the relationship with the wildlife i'm guessing oh yes uh we were arguing for less uh we were arguing for less hunting and pressure on the local moose population the last time that i left and it was like largely successful because to give them like to give the moose population reprieve it's because um we were dealing with a problem that our populations were semi-nomadic and small like it we would be spread out over like an area and like meet up back in the winter but because we were like in one place and also our populations were growing there was a problem with over harvesting and like feeding a lot more hungry mouths so being able to control that harvesting practice also for like other like non-indigenous hunters like applying for EN, applying to ENR for hunting license for that year would be maybe like one tag instead of like three so that we would there would be less pressure on uh, moose populations better practices for harvesting hunting like taking only cow or like taking or taking moose but leaving cows if they're 
in Easter so around that time so that their population will continue to the next one. Uh, I mean, that's just like a if you can take a cow, you'll probably take it. But if you don't have to, like, it's generally hope that you won't. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like uh, with respect to the fishing industry, there in the 80s, I'm pretty sure there was a uh, fishing boom where uh, people were overfishing in like the Great Slave Lake, whitefish, uh, in canoe, or coney, as they're called, and uh, over-harvesting it. And the, the biggest problem is that coney is a really long-lived fish, and it needs a lot of time in order to get their population up to any uh, amount of density. And so the uh, coupled by the fact that they weren't really technically seen as like the main catch, they were called bycatch, so they technically fishermen didn't technically have to list them off a bycatch and they were being sold for like $60 a pound, which is gold, which is absolute gold for a fish Jeez. that you'd like pull a 20 foot pounder fish. And then like millions of tons of that, that's basically gold. And so they've over, they fished them to near extinction and suddenly the fishing, the fishing economy collapsed. And so there was a big push for the fishery to reopen for fishermen from down south and like everybody to start like commercially fishing these populations to like hell and back. And fish the fishery didn't really make a whole lot of money because the processing plant was in Winnipeg. So you harvest a fish and you send it to the fish plant, you get paid like maybe five to ten bucks per pound of like white fish that you harvest. It gets sent down south and then it gets sent to like a it gets used for dog food or anything else because fish are really only really pristinely fresh in the 24 to 36 hours that they're caught after that it's like mm. and that's even with frozen and it would take like three days for them to get to the fish plant from the northwest territories to the fish processing plant in winnipeg you're kind of going to lose some money in that case so when we left it we wanted to develop the fishery and the fish plant there to be processing as well so that when we uh, process the fish and it gets processed here in the Northwest Territories, it can be sent straight to just or distributors like right away, thus creating like a more feasible fishing economy instead of people pulling up millions of tons of fish and then sending them down south for reduced prices. And it's so cool to think of like we, we get into a, a conversation point of like how fish populations are doing and that always seems to naturally loop back in this conversation now back to, again to community health, which is like how do we how do we make the community more economically stable and provide good jobs to people? So it's just it's cool to see how it continues to loop back. Um what do you think the future of the Guardian programs are in Canada? Do you do you see them like kind of taking off or like you know more communities really accessing them uh yes i i see like a great future for the guardian program uh like it's i i can't really speak in respect to any other communities but like no i will <laughs> i think they're all doing a great job like the other day i had seen an ad for uh indigenous guardians like join up like just on like the news and it was just like really weird because that wasn't a thing that existed like nobody knew what guardianship programs were at the beginning it was like oh yeah guardianship program uh okay because it was just like a it was just like a really unknown and unexplored area like nobody knew what it meant like everybody was had different ideas and people were arguing for it i mean that first year was just like other communities even our community like arguing with the government 
or no, our community wasn't. <laughs> a lot of other communities like saying like we want the government to design our guardianship program, and then my community and a whole bunch of other communities who are designing they're saying they're like no, you can do whatever you want with this. Like take the funding, de develop your own program. Like you don't understand. This is a golden egg. This is a great opportunity, and. Like a lot of those communities have developed absolutely gorgeous commute, like gorgeous guardianship programs, like the the commercial, the amount of like people this is reaching, like the jobs that like it's opened up. Like uh, a, a major uh, fear was that high schoolers were basically not going to be able to find work afterwards or like work at a minimum wage job and weren't going to be able to do what their parents like had taught them to do, like go out in the land, do all these other things. Like, or like that high schoolers were just like not interested in the wilderness or like an environment, but like they're your kids. They definitely are very interested in like to see this whole kid straight out of a uh, high school being like, yeah, like I, I really want to work in this program. I like would, I absolutely love being out in the wilderness. Like it's everything I've learned as a kid, like that reaffirmation for their culture, for like their heritage. And it's just like, yeah, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. They're, they're being, uh, they're being they're being given the opportunity to express their heritage and like their upbringing, their culture, their everything they know, like in a official professional capacity, and further develop that to life and anywhere else they go. Like it's just a leg up straight from the ground up, which is just like nothing that had ever existed in the first place. It's like it's huge potential, huge potential to do whatever you need for your community and. I can guarantee you that regardless of what you try to do with the guardianship program, it's just going to tend itself back to being holistic in nature, no matter how much you specialize it. Because, I mean, people are way more complex than anything you can come up with. Yeah, so the, the guardianship programs sound like they're in good hands and they're going to be just continuing to grow and serve the community in ways that are deeper, more fuller, uh, as far as we go here across Canada. Um and you had a major hand in that, so that's exciting. But you, you've taken a break from the guardianship program. What are you really focusing on now, Jeff? Like, what's the, the direction now for you? Uh, the direction right now is to finish film school. And my hope is to, uh, when I finish, to go back to my home community and shoot a movie entirely in my own uh, home language, Deneati. Like, that's that's the dream right now. I, uh, in my time working as a indigenous guardian, I, in community development, I... Uh, Worked with a woman named Dana Mores from Haida Gwaii First Nation, and I absolutely fell in love with her idea for community development and like the holistic nature where you can tackle everything. And one of the things that she did with her community was uh, she helped them create a movie entirely in their own traditional language. And that's just like a <laughs> that's just like a, a a massive goal for me, showcasing that the that the culture isn't dying and that it's you know still here it's just, you know developing quietly sounds like you got kickstarted a little with the with the program if if uh if i'm hearing you right anyways the, the guardianship program kickstarted it oh definitely i mean they're gonna have to thank me with money no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> That's cool to hear, man. So, and if and if folks wanted to kind of follow along on your journey here as you continue to not only um, do some some cultural restoration, but uh, film, uh, what's the best way to follow you, Jeff? Uh, the best way to follow me is my Instagram at uh, odd and otherwise. So, <laughs> I'll just type in the chat. 
Yeah, we'll and we'll tag it in the show notes too, so people know how to get a hold of you. And so you can follow Jeff along there. Jeff, before you go though, you you owe us a story, buddy. Yes, I do. Uh, I think I told you this one before. Uh, so back when I was on that fishing vessel, there was a case where so in reach had just started coming out and they were like being they were being like uh tested with like a uh, indigenous projects like ours which was the fishing vessel and for those who, who aren't familiar in any reach is like a slightly better than a gps and like a sat phone you can text on it you can uh, send messages uh, it shows you your exact position where you are with like a 10 or so meter or even less than that error like it's, it's pretty accurate and there's like a really handy button on it where you press where you flip the case you press that button you hold it and it sends out like a uh it sends out an sos and somebody will get it and chase you used to use those when you flew right yeah yeah so this had just they had just started coming out there was no text or there was a really basic text capability a little black and white screen and uh the safety on it was that you had this little uh, slide you, p- you pull that slide open you press that button you hold it for three seconds and then it comes up with the it comes up with a little prompt is this emergency yes no you hit no in case it was an accident and the call doesn't go up so while we were working on this fishing vessel inreach wanted to test use us as like a test for their equipment just in case like anything happened while we were out in the field and we were going to have it for the rest of the project and so our supervisor shows it to us very carefully she opens up the slide she doesn't press the button she showcases us like this is what you do if you're in trouble you hold that button sends an sos you get a prompt like five seconds three to five seconds saying is this a problem if you don't respond it's going to assume it and then it's going to send an sos if it's not you press no you close that slide you're done with it she puts in this little she puts in this little case gives it to the captain the captain is like i don't care about this newfangled thing so he throws into like the captain's lockbox and the lockbox is designed to like float up to the surface just in case it's got like all the important information that he needs and uh, we just don't think about it. We all hop into the we all hop into the fishing boat. We sit in the nets, and then we just fall get we just fall asleep and are rocked to sleep by the gentle bounce of this boat on waves of sitting in net. Absolutely the best job ever. I recommend it. Work on a fishing vessel if you can. But the entire time, like we're hearing like this beep, and it's like beep, 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 and we don't even think about it because uh, the fishing vessel had like a depth finder and a radar on it and like as well as a radio so it's making all kinds of noises all the time we just stack it up to that and uh we our first sight is about an hour and a half travel time from the shore so this entire time this beep is is going off we get to where we need to go uh we drop anchor (laughs) we start pulling up uh, or no we drop anchor we start feeding the net off into the boat and like we hear the rumble of engines overhead and uh, it's this twin otter that's like doing a sm- that flying straight towards us and is doing like a small like search circle right above us. We're like really obvious that they're looking right at us. And like I kick myself in the leg every once in a while when I think about that because I also did search and rescue, so I know what a search pattern looks like. I know what the pattern looks like when they find the source of their search. And like we just look at the we just look at the boat and like we're talking to each other. What's and I even recognize the plane. I know who flew it. I know exactly who's leading the search and rescue efforts to save us. And we just say, oh, it might just be tourists. And like, I think I recognize that plane, but I can't be sure. So we just continue working. And then fast forward, we pull that net. We're like logy and tired. And 
Uh, it's three hours later and we're setting a new net. And lo and behold, one of uh, one of my friends, on, my buddy on the boat was just like, do you hear that? And like, we have a, we have an engine going and we're playing music, but it's like this really loud, deep rumble. And it's just like really distinct. And we both, we all look up and they're like, is that a Hercules? That's a Hercules. There's a Hercules like doing a search pattern around us. What is up with that? What is today? We just don't even think about it. And we just like keep like feeding a, we just keep feeding this net <laughs> into like the lake. We, we try not to think that there is. That there is a gigantic plane in a search pattern, like really high up. So we're all tired. We're logy. We're sleeping in like nets and we're being gently rocked back to sleep while we head back to shore. This is hour seven. And like seven hours out in the open lake, working hard. And Coast Guard like comes up to us. And like it's a it's a pretty big deal because uh, I don't know if anybody's ever seen a Coast Guard vessel, but they have like 50. They have like 50 caliber machine guns on the front mounted and there's people mounted on it <laughs> and they're coming straight for us. And it's just like, like, uh, we know it's, we know it's Coast Guard and no one on the ship is scared. What everyone on the ship is like, these guys are on a gun on a Coast Guard vessel headed straight for us. What the fuck do they want with us? What could we be doing that they want anything to do with us? And they come up to us, they pull up right next to us. They're like, are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Like everybody's looking for you. Like, what do you mean? Everybody's looking for you. And then he pulls the, the guy on the gun, like pulls out a binder and pulls up like this, uh, this map of Lake. And it clearly shows our, like our path on the Lake from setting the first net, traveling all over to a different sector, setting the second net and then meeting, like starting our journey back to shore. And it's just like, this isn't us. Like it can't be us. There's no way this can't be us. And then I get the thought that, we we had seen like another fishing vessel sector away. These sectors are like uh, uh, three to f they're like five kilometers like squares, and so we we'd seen like black smoke coming from it. It could have just been like a really old vessel, but we I said uh, we we saw like another ship. We, there was black smoke coming from it. It could be them, like because like they were uh, taking their sweet time out in the lake, and we were worried about them, like. It could be them. So we set the Coast Guard on a wild goose chase and we went back to like sitting on the nets and then just going back to shore, like just totally oblivious that there was like this, like we had all the signs that something was happening, but we just like didn't piece it together. And uh, we get back to shore and as we're like pulling up with our fishing vessel, our supervisor there just crying her eyes out, like happy that we're okay. Like they're alive, they're alive. We get back to shore and there's like police, there's RCMP cars like lined up on the shore, like waiting to take our statements. <laughs> like, where are you guys okay? Is anyone hurt? Is anyone dead? And then come to find out that the inReach had like uh, failed. It had like said it, it, it either got knocked in its case or for whatever reason like sent out like a distress signal like right away as soon as we started our trip. <laughs> like, what happens is that. Uh, the SOS goes out, it reaches the in-reach guy, and then he tries to confirm with us whether it's a emergency or not. And if they can't, they reach the, the project manager. Well, the project manager that one day out of the entire project had decided that like, yeah, like it, I kind of get, I can kind of get in trouble if I go out to the field, but you know, nothing ever happens in this project. And I would really like to go out into the field with these guys because being out in the lake is gorgeous and this one time it won't hurt this one time if i go out 
and because he was out <laughs> he was out too nobody could reach him and uh it was decided okay so we don't know if this is a real emergency they reached the supervisor and the supervisor's like i don't know like i can't reach them i've been radioing them but they're out of radio range like you know they're 10 kilometers out to the <laughs> lake there's the curvature of the earth to think about with these things and like uh and uh sat phones are unreliable you need to point them like in a specific direction and if you're in a boat that's impossible like you can never use that thing and so we just there was no point of contact they activated the Casera Civil Air Search and Rescue to send a plane after us. And if we had waved at the plane at all, they would have been like, they're fine. It's probably just a it's probably just a mechanical error and they'd come back. But because we ignored them and we kept working, they were like, We don't we see people and I think they're working, but they're just they're not responding. We don't know what's happening. It's a big mystery. <laughs> so they fly back. And what happens next is that the RCP at this point is involved and they're activated. And they send a request to Winnipeg military base saying that we have a search and rescue <laughs> event happening up here. Can you activate the military? So they activate a Hercules jet, <laughs> like a Hercules plane, to fly three hours to the north to where our position was and then do a search pattern around us to find, <laughs> see if we were still alive. And we didn't wave at those guys either. So uh, the RCP at that point, that point did time the one fellow who was the community police officer was calling all our families like your pet your kid might be dead <laughs> we just want to prepare you for that and like so all these different families got like really pissed and like really angry they're like i can't believe they said you were dead but come to find out they called like my grandparents like so your grandson might be dead my grandfather was like no he's not he hung up <laughs> just, <laughs> but like there's this huge this huge shit show of like things that just had to go absolutely specifically for like all that to ramp up. And I think uh, we narrowly, we narrowly escaped a fine because the inReach had failed. Like inReach is reliable. They're super reliable. Trust them. But in this case, it was just like a, it was just like a freak accident. That's all it was. And I think it would have been something like $10,000 an hour for the Hercules, like being activated. And we narrowly avoided something like three hundred sixty thousand dollars in fines for our project, <laughs> because because the because we were able to prove that the inReach had failed. Like, yeah, <laughs> the inReach was a little too reliable in that circumstance. Yeah, and uh, again, like I did search and rescue, so I should have been able to recognize a search pattern, but. I will say I've only ever been in those search patterns. I've never actually seen one from the ground. Yeah. yeah. I guess so. Perspective. A matter of perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, not only did I learn a lot, but it's just such a uh, amazing and robust topic here. And uh, you brought so much energy. I, I love it, man. Uh, thanks so much. You're welcome. And thanks for what, so much for having me on it. Chaser, any final thoughts on your end? Uh, thank, just want to thank Jeff for coming on. I think, uh, you know, I learned a lot from you today, Jeff. And I think uh, everybody that's out there listening, I think, you know, everyone can take a little bit away from this conversation, even if it is just a little bit. Uh, a lot of information here. And I think, um, you know, just uh, we're, we're able to put some of this – the stuff that we talked about today into, into motion and in some other ways uh, beyond your guardian program, 
yeah, and, and just making uh, our communities down here, hunting communities, fishing communities, uh, better places too. For sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Jeff. We'll uh, we'll look forward to following you along on whatever's next. And uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening, folks, to episode 82 with Jeffrey Fabian. We appreciate everybody who listens in. And uh, if you want to help us out on the podcast here and also on our social platforms, go to whatever platform you're listening to this on, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a rating, and preferably a five-star rating if you're liking what you're hearing. And uh, leave us a little comment there, too. That always helps us out. And uh, Tristan, what do you got? Yeah, we had one person, I think, left us a one-star rating. But if you looked at the comment, it said, excellent show, love the content. So I think they meant to give us a five-star, but I think that's our only, like, one-star rating. So kind of funny that it turned out that way. But appreciate the the feedback nonetheless. Always appreciated. Um, Jeff, huge thanks for coming out on the podcast today. It was critical to get this perspective, I feel. And it's also, I think, a great lead off for our conservation series. So uh, I'm, I'm super stoked that it happened, that we went down this path and that we're going to forge forward. Um, if you want to give Jeff a follow, really interesting guy. He's currently at the Toronto Film School studying film, which is, uh, you know, just another level of to what he's going to be bringing to the world. Follow him on Instagram at odd and otherwise and you can get in touch with them there. Other than that, thanks for listening, folks. Keep your knife sharp. Keep the powder dry. And the lines tight. Good luck in the turkey woods. Gobble, gobble.